Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning. Thanks for being here this morning on a very big day here at South Lakes. It is this Palm Sunday, the day in which Jesus walks in triumphantly to the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. We're going to unpack what that means here this morning. And man, I just am encouraged by what happened in the first service and uh, what is going to continue to happen. The Lord really moved uh, in a powerful way in the first service. It was good to see new faces and just, it was it's just fun. I love church. I just love being here this morning. If you're joining us online, thanks for being here. Um, go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the Old Testament book of First Samuel, all right? If you're like, first of what? Okay, so it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Then there's a little book called Ruth. And then you're going to be in 1 Samuel, all right? You want to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Also, I'd encourage you to get sermon notes out or get your app out as there's stuff that you can do online for you to be able to, um, to follow along. Because we're going to be talking about some things this morning that really have some deep repercussions in our personal lives this morning. But let's talk about this week and let's talk about what this week means. This week is Passion Week. It's the week where where we start on this Sunday where Jesus walks in triumphantly into Jerusalem. And by the time we get to next Sunday, he is going to be resurrected. And in between that time, we've got Passover and we've got the Lord's Supper and we've got feet washing and we've got um, all sorts of things. We've got the cross that's happening, lots of different things that are happening between now and next week. And so we are celebrating the fact that today is Passover week or our Passion Week. And so one way that we're doing that as a church is that one thing is we've been walking through the Bible. Um, one thing that we see in the Bible is that God's people have set aside throughout history moments or weeks or time where they're just giving an extra dose to the Lord of themselves, if you will. We call them festivals or we call them feasts or whatever it is when you're looking at the Bible, okay? And so what I feel convicted of as your pastor is that if God never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then it would it would hold true that one thing that he would desire is that we would live a life where there would be moments in our life outside of just giving him an hour of our day on a Sunday, all right, that he would say, would you give me more? And so Passion Week is one of those weeks that just lends itself to naturally um, be a week where we set aside. And so on your app, if you go, if you don't have your SL app, I would da- encourage you to download the South Lakes app. On the front page, there is a Passion Week logo. And if you click on that, it will go through Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and it will walk through all things that are Passion Week, and it will walk through, we all start at 6 o'clock on those evenings, when what childcare is available, it will talk about who the speakers are, we have a different speaker coming in every week, some of the best communicators that I know that will be walking through different aspects of Passion Week. And this is what we've been praying. Father, would you move in a powerful way in our church? This is for us as our church, for us to say, I'm going to set aside Monday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and I want to focus in as a church body on the Lord. Will it be hard? Yes. Is it a school night? 
Yes. Do you have to go to work the next day? Yes. Do I sympathize? Yes. Can we do it? Yes. Yes, we can. And this is what, this is the pep talk I've been giving my wife for the last three months. So, yes, we can. All right? Um, So... We, in our household, typically we wash hair on uh, Monday nights, and tomorrow night we are putting up the tent that we're going to be in because we're not going to be in here. We really are going kind of Old Testament on us, and we're going to be setting up a tent, and we're going to be uh, meeting out there, and the kids will be inside on, during Passion Week. But so last night we looked at each other and we said... We have to wash hair tonight. So we've been doing steps to make sure that uh, we're going to be able to be here. And so I need you here tomorrow night. Uh, if you can be available with a sledgehammer, please, 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 please be here as we need to set up a tent. But also Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, everything you need to know is on the app. And so I, would, I just, man, I encourage you, I implore you, be here, be here. And one thing that is really unique is that we, this is an opportunity for our entire church to be together. It's hard to fit 250 people in a room like this that seats like 110. It's just hard. And so the tent is twice as big as this room, and we did that on purpose so that we could fit the whole church body there. And so please, please be there. Also, we're celebrating this week, or today, because today is 100 days in our Walk Through the Bible Challenge. 100. If I, I wish we had rafters and that like balloons and confetti would fall down because that would be awesome. So this means a couple things. Number one, if you have been faithful in reading God's word for 100 straight days, I'm going to say, great job. If you're like, okay, I really haven't been super faithful, but I haven't been consistent. I haven't done all 100 days, but I've been more consistent than I've ever been. I'm going to say, great job. Way to be consistent. If you're here going, yeah, I really haven't done this. I have great news for you. Today is a great day to start joining us in the journey because today we start a new section of walk through the bible the first 12 weeks we've been doing foundations and it covered genesis all the way through the book of judges and it was really god laying the foundation of his people this week on and into the next 11 weeks after this we're in a series called kingdom and we're going to be looking at how god establishes his kingdom here on earth in the israelites and so you can start today by reading in 1 Samuel, and you won't miss a beat because you'll be caught up to where we are. And so I would encourage you, whether you've said, I've done all 100 days, or I've been super consistent, or I'm going to start today, man, good for you. Good for you. Keep plowing ahead. If you are a child of God, then our hunger should be for the word of God. And the only way that I know that we can feed that hunger is to be in God's word. And when that happens, man, he transforms lives, okay? And so another thing that we're going to be doing this morning is that every week for the last eight weeks or so, we've been praying corporately for God to move during Passion Week. And so we're actually going to do that. We're going to just have a time right now of where we're going to pray. And so would you just close your eyes and bow your heads? I would implore you at home as well to do this. And I'm going to just give you just about four or five prompts, and I want you to pray these prayers in your heart, okay? Here's the first prayer that I would ask you to pray in your heart this morning. Would you pray, God, would you be glorified this week during Passion Week? Just pray that prayer in your heart. The second thing I would ask you to pray this morning is, would you say, God, will you move in my life personally this week?
Thirdly, I would ask you to pray this prayer. God, will you move in the hearts of my church family? Fourthly, we've been really encouraging everyone to be praying and really getting ready to invite someone to come to Easter Sunday. And we've been asking you to pray specifically for someone by name. And so would you either pray for that person right now by name that God would soften their heart and they put a yes in their mouth when you invite them? Or if you don't have that person, would you pray, God, show me who should I invite to join me next week? Would you just pray that? And then the last prayer is the prayer that we pray to open up every service. It's the prayer of God, will you help me to be present in this moment? And will you speak to me personally this morning? Would you pray those two prayers in your heart right now? Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. We come to you in the resurrected name of Jesus, Father. And we confidently stand before the throne room of God this morning. And we ask and we beg and we implore, would you move in the hearts of our people here at South Lakes? Father, would you reveal yourself, show yourself to us, in a way that would just change us. I pray not just for today, but I pray for Wednesday. I pray for Thursday. I pray for Friday. I pray for Rusty. I pray for Jeremy. I pray for uh, Todd. Three men that no one in this room knows, but they're going to be coming in to speak truth over us. And I pray that you would put your words in their mouth and that your spirit would have a freedom to move. But Father, we join, we join with you this morning on what you're going to do. And we pray that you would be glorified in all things. And it's in the mighty, resurrected name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we are this morning. And let's just kind of walk through where we are. I said this is, we're starting a new series called Kingdom. So let's talk about foundation real quick. Foundation starts in Genesis 12 when God calls a man by the name of Abram out of the land of Ur and says, I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm going to bless the nations through you, and I'm going to give you a land. And for five Hundred years, God reiterates his promise to Abram and his descendants saying, I'm going to give you a land. 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 And by the time we get to uh, a couple weeks ago, we were in the book of Joshua. God uh, fulfills his promise to give his people the land. And he does so through a man by the name of Joshua who marches the 12 tribes across the Jordan and they take the promised lands. Now they don't do a great job of completely fulfilling everything, but they get it to a point where they can settle. After they settled into the land and they they fulfilled the 500 year promise, last week we looked at the book of Judges. And Judges is all about, it covers 400 years in the history 
of the Jewish nation of Israel, longer than we've been a, a, a nation here in the United States. It covers a long period of time. And you could summarize all 400 years of judges with this uh, diagram that's up on the screen. It's this cycle of sin that they find themselves in where they pursue God and they turn from God and so God disciplines them and they repent and God raises up a judge or a military leader to help save them and then they enjoy a, a time of peace and then they start it all over again. And this right here summarizes what the book of Judges is. So by the time you get through Judges, there is a transition period as we go into the book of Samuel. And the transition is this. We're going to go from temporary judges who rule for a little bit and then move on to now we're going to go to a prophet. And the prophet's name is Samuel. And Samuel not only acts as a prophet or a mouthpiece of God, but he acts as a judge or someone that's going to lead over the people of Israel. The problem is that Samuel, by the time we get to 1 Samuel 8, Samuel has gotten pretty old, and he just doesn't have the strength to judge and to lead the entire nation of Israel. So he appoints his kids, his sons, to take his place. And so now you're up to, play, up to speed. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. It says, when Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel, and the name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So here's what happens, is that we see, I'm going to introduce you in your notes this morning, this is your first fill in the blank, to the rejection, a specific rejection that happens in these verses. So the Israelites go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, no offense, but your sons are pretty worthless. They take bribes and they're not in it for for leading us towards the Lord. They're in it for their own financial gain. And there is no way that we are going to let them rule over us. So give us a king. Now, the thing is that if you were here last week, you know this is not the first time that they have requested that a king be placed over them as a people. Back in Judges chapter 8, we looked at the life of Gideon last week, one of the judges. And they asked Gideon, become king over us. And Gideon said no, and then he did a lot of things that said yes. And so they've been asking for this for a while. Now, I need you to understand this morning that there was actually nothing wrong with Israel asking Samuel to appoint a king. In fact, God tells Moses in Deuteronomy 17 that one day God would appoint a king to rule over his people. But what we see is that when Samuel, who gets very mad at the request, he goes to God, and when God responds to Samuel, 
we see that when God responds, it demonstrates something about the motivation behind the request for a king. See, the reality is that God is supposed to be their king. And the reality is that God is supposed to be the one that they depended on to meet their needs. And so when, so let's look in verse 7. It, God tells Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being the king. See, God's answer to Samuel is give it to them, but here's the reason you need to give it to them is because they are rejecting me from being king over them. And this isn't the first time, Samuel, that they've rejected me. Look on in verse 8. It says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day. For a long time now, the Israelites had this this, this habit of rejecting God as being their king. This was a pattern that their entire nation was built upon. Think about it. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's having a little convo with God, and the people build a calf, a golden calf. They complain to God, we need a stronger army. They complain to God in the wilderness, we need you to provide us food, and we need water. They, they complain when God says, go take the promised land, and they go, well, it's not safe enough. Could you make it a little safer? They had been rejecting God's leadership from the beginning. It's as if Israel was saying this, you know, God, yes, we want you, but we're going to need some guarantees. We're going to need some guarantees. And if you meet our guarantees, then we'll acquiesce. If we were to put this in the 2022 vernacular, this is kind of what I came up with. It's, it's as if the Israelites were saying this, you know what? It's all well and good that God is like a safety net to us. Because after all, we need someone or something to fall back on in case of an emergency. And let's be honest, we don't want to tick him off because, well, we don't want him to send us to hell. But in the here and now, let's just be honest, we have real bills to pay. And we have real enemies who hate us. And we have real social issues that we need to deal with. So frankly, we need something more than just an invisible God that we don't know where he is half the time. We need somebody we can depend upon. And we need someone that we can hold accountable. We need something more than what God has given us. Several years ago, when I was in student ministry, I took a group of seniors who had just graduated high school. We went on a uh, senior trip to Colorado. One of the the greatest trips I've ever been on. We whitewater rafted and we, uh, we, we mountain climbed. And one of the things that we did was repel, repel off of a cliff. Now, here's the thing about repelling. Repelling off of a cliff requires one thing, really. It requires complete confidence and trust that that rope that is attached to your harness is going to hold you so that you do not go splat. That's really what it is. So these big, bad senior boys, when it came time for mountain climbing, or rock, uh, yeah, they were like, yeah, come on. But when it came time to repelling, they looked at me and go, why don't you go? You're the adult. I was like, chicken. So they put me in, you know, and I, we're about 150 feet up. And, and I remember the instructor going, all right, I just need you to sit down. And I look over the cliff, and I'm like, say what? And they go, we just need you to sit down. Don't worry, the rope's got you. I was like. Sounds like a bad idea, but okay. So I sit down, and when I sit down, I notice, oh, the rope, it is holding me. And so I just 
kind of jumped all the way down and rappelled down the cliff. And so one guy went, another guy went, another guy went, another guy went, and then this one kid named Brayden. Every youth group always has that one kid. He's the kid that does things a little differently. If you don't know who that kid was, you were that kid, okay? And so, um, and so, and so I remember, I remember watching him, and Braden did not sit down in the harness. What Braden did is he inched out over the cliff, and he put his foot down, and he made sure it was secure, and then and he walked down the cliff, but only after he realized that his feet was secure. See, in rock climbing, you use your hands and your feet to move up the mountain, and you are attached to a rope, but it's there as a safety net in case you mess up and you misjudge. But here's the thing. If you walk slowly down a cliff, that's actually not repelling. You're just mountain climbing in reverse, okay? And what that demonstrated is that Braden never really trusted that the rope was going to hold him to begin with. This describes the Israelites in this instant, is that they wanted God as their safety net. They liked the idea of the rope attached to the harness, but they still wanted to say, no, I need to be able to feel with my hands which rock to grab or to feel the footing, the, the, the rock under my feet to make sure that I'm making the right decisions. And if I fall, I want God to just catch me, but I'll take it from here. So let's get into your notes. There's really two ways to reject God. Okay, and in my opinion, I don't really see any other ways besides these two. There's, the first way is this. You just outright reject him. It's just an outright rejection of him. That's your first, that's your uh, fill in the blank there for you. And now, I would say that most people in this room, probably all of you, you are not just outright rejecting God, all right? I would hope not, all right? And so you're like, no, I need some religion in my life. I need some God. And so in that case, I would say probably all of us fit into the second way that we can reject God. And that's with this. You say that you follow him, but you actually lack dependence upon him. See, it's always easier to trust God when everything that you feel like you need for your life is going well and it's right in front of you. You have a secure job. Your marriage is fulfilling. Your kids are doing well. Everyone's healthy. But when you remove one of those things, man, feelings of insecurity and anxiety and unhappiness begin to creep in. See, this is where Israel was. They were not content to lean back and trust in God. They felt like they needed something that they could get their hands on and control. They needed something more tangible. So let's talk about trusting God, all right? Let's talk about the, 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 the nuts and bolts when it comes to trusting God. Because the reality is this. Following God would be a whole heck of a lot easier if we had guarantees in life. It really would. Following God would be a whole lot easier if we had guarantees in life. For example, if I had a guarantee that my bank account was attached to God's bank account, man, that would be awesome. Because when I mess up and I overdraw, wouldn't it be great instead of getting an overdraft fee, God's bank account just kind of empties out and fills that void that I put in there? That'd be awesome. Or what if my security system was automatically tied into some kind of God security system? So when the alarm would go off in my house, and maybe it's a burglar, or maybe it's a, it's a fire, or whatever it is, like God would send an angel down, and he would just smote the enemy in the room. Like, that would be awesome, Right? Or what if we were connected to the God medical insurance plan? 
You know, that's the plan where when things go wrong, you are guaranteed that you're going to come out okay in the end. You're going to be guaranteed that healing is going to happen. Like, no questions asked. You just turn the card in. Like, it would be easy if we had guarantees like that. I would also say trusting in God would be a whole lot easier if we could control him. But we're not, we're not dumb people in this room. And we know we can't control God. So instead of controlling God, what we do instead is we come up with a list of requirements or demands or stipulations for God and say, if you would do this for me, then I will follow you more. Now, here's the problem with that. When we try to control God by coming up with stipulations, is that we have to understand that a rejection of trust in God is actually rejection of God himself. So when you reject trusting God in some area of your life, you actually are rejecting God. And you go, whoa, I am, a, I am here today. Like, I am dropping some G's on the plate, and I, I am going to volunteer for Passion Week. Like, you don't know me like that. Listen, I'm just telling you that there are two ways to reject God. There's outright rejection, or is there, I do trust you, but only up to a certain point. Hebrews eleven six. I'm only going to read the first part. It's up on the screen. It says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's just it. And so what we see here is that when we don't trust someone or something, we try to control that thing. Don't believe me? This is why we have contracts that are enforceable by law. I've bought many cars in my life, and I've never walked into a dealership before and said, hey, I'll take the Honda. I promise you I'll mail in my check every month. And they never shake my hand and say, deal, buddy. No, they go, hey, why don't you step into my finance office and let's sign the contract. Why? Because we don't really trust someone to do that, so we feel like we need to control them. Another example, some of you have been under this type of manager, or some of you might be this type of manager. This is where micromanagement comes from because you really don't trust the people that are under you to do the job. So you look over their shoulder. You constantly nag them. You constantly tell them how to do it. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever been under a micromanager before, I am sorry. (laughs) That's the worst. If you're like, I don't think I've ever been under a micromanager before, then you are the micromanager, okay? Stop it. (laughs) No one likes to work for the micromanager, But the reason we micromanage is because we do not trust. And when we do not trust in someone, then we feel like we need to control them. And so Israel, in this moment, wants a king that they can see, they can touch, and they can control. Why? Because they don't fully trust God. And so when God tells Samuel in verse 7, don't worry, they are rejecting me, not you. He is 100% correct. Because everything about God up to this point His character has proven that he is trustworthy. So the question is, why in the world would God grant them a request that he knows is not good for them? And the short answer to a much more complicated answer is this. It's because sometimes God will answer your prayers with a yes to let you learn the hard way that what you're asking for is wrong. Parents, we know this. Kid comes up. Can I eat this entire bag of peeps, Dad? Yeah, they're gross, but sure, go for it, kid. Listen, here's the thing. Those kids, they're not going to be praying to God at the end of the bag of peeps. They are, they are going to be praying. It's just going to be to the porcelain God. You know what I'm saying? Because they're going to be sick. All right, you want the bag of peeps? 
That's great. Can't go into it right now. It's too long of a story. My kids learned this yesterday. And uh, not about the bag of peeps, but about something else. And uh, they were out with a friend in the woods, um, and someone got hurt, hurt pretty good. And uh, Dad had to show up and rescue him. Um, and at the end, they were like, I'll never do that again. I'm like, you bet. You, you know you're not. Yeah. But sometimes God answers our yes. Or answers us with a yes to show us that what we're asking for is wrong. So you want something so badly that you work for it, right? You obsess over it. You pray about it. I mean, you earnestly pray for it. And then when you get it, we've all been there. And it's just not what you thought it was going to be. Like, think about winning the lottery. Like, winning the lottery would be kind of cool, right? Especially when it gets up to, like, half a billion dollars. That's kind of awesome. But yet, statistics tell us that most people who win the lottery don't have a penny to their name in a couple years. In fact, they discover that what they thought was going to be a blessing actually ended up being an enormous curse because everyone and their dog came out of the woodworks asking for it. Or you work feverishly to get a particular job, and you go, God, if you just give me this job, it will give me more money, it will give me more flexibility, I will be a better dad, I will be a better mom, I can give you more time at church, I can do this, I can do that. Think about the tithe check I can give you, God. Think about all this stuff. And you reach that job, and when you look back, you realize this was not a blessing, this was a curse. Because in the wake of your journey, you've destroyed your family, your testimony, and everything in between. In fact, one of the scariest statements in all of Scripture is found in Romans chapter 1. Now, I don't have time to go into all of Romans, but I would encourage you to read Romans 1. But I'm going to give you just one half of a sentence. It's Romans 1, 26. It says this, For this reason God gave them, them is the world, up to dishonorable passions. Now, when you read Romans 1, and by the way, I never encourage you to read something out of context like this, and so don't do what I'm doing. Do as you're told, all right? So, but here, let me, let me, but for, 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 for preaching time's sake, let me explain what's going on here. God is telling the world in Romans 1 that my judgment on the world is this. I'm going to answer all of your prayers with a yes. You think this is going to make you happy? I'll give it to you. Fine. Take it. You think this is going to make you happy? Yes. Yes. And what happens is that when God answers the world's request with a yes, what we end up with is 2022, where we sit back and we go, what's the matter with our world? Well, it's because God said yes. It's because God said yes. But on the flip side, some of God's greatest mercies in our life come to us in the form of unanswered prayers. Garth Brooks had it right all along. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? So how about instead of us getting mad at God for not answering our prayer, maybe we should give him a shout of praise for protecting us. And although it might not seem like protection in the moment, because after all, what's so bad about winning the lottery or what's so bad about making an extra 20K a year? What if God in that moment is trying to teach us, you know what, you need to be happy in me alone because I am enough. Because after all, there is nothing wrong with praying for more money, for praying for more success, for praying for your family, for praying for a new car. There is nothing wrong with that stuff. The problem comes in when a person begins to crave those things so much that they feel like this is the only way I'm going to be happy or the way I'm going to be secure. Let me show you. 1 John 2.16, it's going to be up on the screen here. It says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not 
from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, the word that I want to hone in on here is the word desire. It's used three times in this text. And the word desire is the Greek word epithumia. And what this word desire means, what the word, the Greek word epithumia means is this. It is a craving that controls us. Or it is a craving that a person literally cannot live without. So is it a bad thing to pray for things? No. But when you have it, you're so focused in on that thing that that's all you can think about. And you go, if I get this, I will be happy. Then it becomes a desire and then it becomes bad. That's what the Israelites were facing. They were facing this, not asking for a bad thing, but the motivation behind the ask was bad, and it was consuming them. It was consuming them to the point where, well, let's just keep reading. Look in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, well, this is going to be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to be his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyard and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day... You will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. God says to Samuel, give them what they need, but let them know what the consequences are. And there are consequences for rejecting God as king. And in this case... It's the same no matter what you're holding on to. Did you notice what the key word in this, in this section was? It was the word take. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to take the best of your fields. He's going to take a tenth of your grain. He's going to take your male and female servants. He's going to take a tenth of your flocks. What's ironic in this situation is that the Israelites were wanting a king that they could appoint to, to give them and guarantee them prosperity and security. But the reality of the situation is that they were going to receive a king who was going to take all those things from them. They wanted a king they could control. But instead, they got a king who would end up controlling them. See, here's the truth of the matter. It doesn't matter what king you put on your heart. It doesn't matter what you think is going to happen. When you have a king other than God, they will not save you, but they will tyrannize you. They will tyrannize you. They will rule over you. Let's, let's, Let's just look for a couple of examples. Let's say that the thing that you're craving is success. You just really want to be successful. There's nothing wrong with success. Nothing. I want to be the best pastor that I can possibly be. There's nothing wrong with that. But what happens is that over time, when it becomes this desire, this craving, we become a slave to our success. And we begin to overwork. And we begin to get jealous of other successful people in our trade. And we begin to resent others 
who receive promotions and praise, and we become devastated when people talk about us without giving us the credit that we think we deserve. And at the end, our success ends up driving us until we destroy our families, our health, and even our lives. And we go, but I just wanted to be successful. And the Lord said, yeah, and I gave it to you and see what it did. Another type of thing that happens, and I've seen this multiple times, is like physical escape, right? Physical escape. Like you need a way to release stress. You need a way to feel relaxed, right? And so you just need something to be able to, you, you can't punch your boss, and so you go punch a punching bag, right? And so um, and so you begin to start off. And, and by the way, I, I, I've said this many times. I know that working out is supposed to release endorphins that make you happy. I have never had a happy workout day in my life, all right? I'm just telling you know right now. So I don't know. I need a scientist to prove this to me. Uh, but here's the thing. It starts off as an enjoyable escape that you can control. But what happens is that it ends up becoming a tyrant that controls you. Why? Because you can never stop stepping on the scale. Or you can never stop looking at yourself in the mirror. Or you can never stop fishing for compliments. So um, several years ago, when, um, when my wife and I were in our undergrad, uh, there was a young couple. They were about three years behind us, and they came up, and they were high school sweethearts. They were, man, they were great believers. They were awesome. They volunteered in their youth ministry. Um, they were just really good people. And everyone knew they were going to get married. They were going to live that fairy tale of, you know, high school sweethearts all the way up to being married and, and, and you know, die after a long life together. And Life was stressful after they graduated, and so she took up running. Now, there's nothing wrong with running. I'm not here to bash you if you run. Um, but what happened is that she started running more and more and more. She did it to relieve stress, but she just began to do it all the time. In fact, it consumed her. She could not join enough running clubs, and she could not race enough, and she could not run enough miles. She just kept running after something. In fact, she ran so far that she left her husband behind. And she chose running over her marriage. She went to something that she thought she could control, but in the end it destroyed her. Why? Because when we put other things in our life that we think will bring us satisfaction, it will always tyrannize us. There's other types of escape too, right? Pornography, drugs, alcohol, overeating. It's all the same type of stuff. It begins as something that you can go to in, for your own escape. And then you begin to crave it more and more until you literally can't turn off the drive. And all of a sudden, you go from looking at someone on a computer screen to being in a hotel room or being somewhere in someone else's bedroom. That you, and you go, how in the world do I get here? I used to tell young girls all the time when I was in student ministry, I, I have never met a prostitute on the street who says, when I grew up, I always wanted to be a prostitute. I've always wanted to be that way. It's always small things that happen to where it starts to overtake you. I've never met someone who got in an affair that said, yeah, when I got married, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a statistic. It always started with something, some kind of pleasure, some kind of something that someone thinks they could control. And eventually the physical pleasure that you were going to for release quickly becomes a master of you. See, every life has a king. The reality is that earthly kings will always turn their subjects into slaves. Always. And everybody serves something in this room. I do it. You do it. There's no exceptions. The question is, are we serving something that's going to bring us life and freedom? Or are we going to be enslaved to something that brings us death? 
So this is what God does. He lays out the consequences of the request. And you know what they say? We'll take our chances. We'll take those odds. Give it to us. Because someone's got to be against the norm. Why can't it be me? So here's what's interesting. When you fast forward 1,100 years into the future, Israel is still looking for a king. They're still looking for someone to rule over them. So Matthew 21, it's going to be up on the screen. It says, When they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone has, uh, says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the, fi- the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds, they went before him, and they followed him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, Well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus shows onto the scene, and after three plus years of doing some pretty trippy stuff, I mean, he's stopping storms, he's walking on water, he's calling dead people out of the grave, he's, uh, he's healing people who have had lifelong ailments, he's, he's spitting in mud and wiping it on people's eyes, and they're, they can see, like, crazy things are happening. And he shows up to Jerusalem the week of Passover, and everyone is ready, they're so ready for a king that there's a procession that walks them into Jerusalem. And they lay down their coats, and they lay down palm branches, and there's a herald that goes before him. He goes, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, Hosanna has a double meaning. On one sense, Hosanna means, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a shout of proclamation. It's a, it's a shout of adoration. But the root of Hosanna means save us or help us now. So yes, they were saying, look, we love this guy. But you know why? Because we need to be saved. And it only took Jesus a couple days before the crowd turned on him and said, well, (laughs) this is another strikeout. This is not the king that we needed. This is just another phony. And the reality is that when you look at the big picture and when you look at what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what what this week represents, it shows us, you know, where every earthly king will fail in the end. It will fail us. Jesus succeeds in what we're looking for. And that's satisfaction. Every earthly king that we put all our desire in, that we think this is going to fulfill us, ends up enslaving us. Jesus is the only king that frees us. Every earthly king that we think is going to bring what we need, whatever that it factor is, will end up turning us into slaves to it. Jesus says, I'm not here to enslave you. I'm here to serve you. 
every earthly king that we think is the key to whatever our happiness is will lead us to death in the end. And Jesus says, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to die in your stead. Every earthly king will never satisfy. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm not just going to satisfy. I'm going to give you abundant life. Because the reality is that all earthly kings will disappoint us eventually. But God has shown us time and time again that he is faithful even when we're not. Even when we are not faithful. Jesus says, that's okay. Because you can trust my rope. And I will not let you go splat. And I've got you. And there's a lot of things going on at our church behind the scenes. And there's a lot of spiritual attacks and spiritual warfare going on. And there's a lot of your brothers and sisters at this church that are learning that God's rope is enough to sustain them. The question is, do you believe that? And you go, but I'm a Christian and I'm here. Hey, thank you. I will give you a star. (laughs) Thank you for being here. But what areas of your life are you rejecting him? Because a rejection of faith in, in God is a rejection of God himself. So what is it? What is it that you're like, this is what my key is. And if I get this, then I will be a better husband or a better father or a better Christian or a better church member or a better neighbor. What is that? Because if it's anything other than Jesus, it will enslave you. It will enslave you and it will kill you. And it will leave a wake of destruction behind you. So every week, I've been doing this for a while now. We're going to keep doing this. The most important part of any message is never the opening songs. It's never the opening prayer. It's never, it's never the message. The, actually, the most important part of anything is what do you do with everything that you've been taught today? It's the application. James, in, in, in the book of James, would say, don't be doers, uh, hearers of the word, but be doers. Like, don't just say, I'm here to learn and don't apply. Learn and then apply, okay? And so here's the questions. If you would look at your notes real quick, or if you would look on your phones under the sermon notes, here are the three questions that everyone should ask themselves this morning. The first one is this. What is God calling you to do right now? Like, what, what, is, what is the action point here? Now, I will tell you that maybe for many of us, the action point is this. God has revealed, I don't trust him in this area of my life. So your action point, I'll just tell you, is repentance. It's saying, God, I am wrong. I have put something ahead of you. And now I ask, would would you forgive me of that? And I turn to you and I trust you. If that's you, where you're putting anything above God, that's your action point. Like, I, I need to turn to Jesus. So the first question is, what are you going to do? What is God calling you to do? The second question is, who can go with you? I share it all the time. We are called to be in community. The greatest, one of the greatest tools that that, that the enemy has, I've been processing this a lot over the last couple weeks. One of the greatest tools that the enemy has is isolationism. When people, when, when good, godly people get upset or when, when, whenever something goes wrong, what happens is that they separate and, and there's isolationism that happens. And the problem is that when we get in isolationism, we get in our heads. And the enemy goes, hey, how about this? And I talk to a lot of disgruntled Christians, not here at South Lakes, okay, in, in that sense. But I talk to a lot of people in coffee shops and they tell me their story. And they go, well, I used to go to church, but let me tell you what that church did to me. Well, have you been back yet? No. 
I can never go back. Okay, we don't go back to that church. Like, get in community. Like, we are called to be communal. So if God's calling you to do something, listen, folks, he's not calling you to do it by yourself. He's not. So if you're called to repentance this morning, then who can go alongside of you to hold you accountable, to keep you encouraged, and to pray for you? Who's that person? Who's that buddy? Is it your wife? Is it your husband? Is it someone in the community? Is it someone somebody who goes to church here? By the way, it needs to be a Christian, okay? Listen, if, I, if you love your mom, I'm glad you love your mom. But if your mom doesn't know Jesus, your mom cannot be that person. Because your mom doesn't care about the same things that you care about. She doesn't. If it's your best friend in high school and they don't love Jesus, you can't be that person. It needs to be a like-minded believer. Third question. When will this be done by? And if the, answer, if, the, if, if the answer to the first question is I need to repent, then the answer to when you need to do it is today. Don't put off today, or to, uh, don't put off for tomorrow what you can do today. Don't be that person that says, I'm going to start working out on January 1, and then January 1 gets here, and you go, well, I'll wait till January 2. And then you get the 3, and you get the 4. And then all of a sudden you look at your calendar and you go, well, it's April 10th. I should probably work out. <laughs> like, don't be that person. What God's calling you to do, act on it, and act on it immediately. So this is how we're kind of going to end this first day of Passion Week, and this is how we're going to get ready for, hopefully get our hearts ready for Passion Week, is that we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Because I don't know a better way to reorient our lives than to remind ourselves of the sacrifice that it took for Jesus to become king. It took his entire life. It took his entire life. It took, it took his life being drained out of him. And so before we shut off our minds, before we get ready for the next step, the, the most important thing you can do before you step up and take the Lord's Supper is what are you going to do with today? What are you going to do with what we talked about today? What's your action item? Who's going with you? And when's it happening? And I would say after you've wrestled with the Lord over that, and after you know, okay, this is what the Lord wants me to do, this is who I'm taking with me, and this is when it's going to be done by, great. When you have that worked out, I would invite you to come up. You do not have to be a member of South Lake to take the Lord's Supper. You just need, you gotta, you need to be a born-again believer. You have, you have to have Jesus as king of your life. And so when you're done figuring out what those, those answers to those questions are, then I would encourage you, if you're here with your family, I would encourage you to take all your family I loved it. My two older girls were saved, and my wife, they were all in the first service. We, stepped, we, we went over there. We took the Lord's Supper together as a family. I would encourage you to come up as a family. If you're like, well, I'm not here with anyone. I'm here by myself. Grab someone from your community group. If you're like, well, I'm, I really want to do this on my own. Great. Do this on your own. That's great. See, we're not passing the plates, and here's the reason. is because some of you may not need to get up and take the Lord's Supper because you've got to work through some issues. And I'm not talking, saying, like, bad issues necessarily. You just got to work through some things. And the worst thing we can do is take the Lord's Supper with the, wrong, with, with, with the wrong heart. It's the worst thing you can do. In fact, Jesus was so serious about taking the Lord's Supper that in the church of Corinth, people were dying when they took the Lord's Supper because they would take it in the wrong manner. And they were like, what is going on? And Paul came in and said, well, here's the issue. You have the wrong heart attitude. Now I'm really glad that the Lord doesn't have people keel over at South Lakes because I'd probably be the first one to go, all right? 
but where's your heart? And what do you need to do to line it up? And then when you're ready, you come up, take from either table. You can go to the corner. You can go back to your seat as your family, in a community group, um, as an individual. And you just have a moment of prayer. You take the bread. You take the, 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 the juice. And you thank God. You say, God, thank you for, for your broken body for me. Thank you for dying for me. And you, you, you take the bread. And then you say, God, thank you for the blood. Thank you for how I, I told my kids, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you for washing away my sins. And you take the juice. And that's it. This is a personal thing. It's a personal thing between you and the Lord, maybe your family and the Lord, maybe your community group and the Lord. I don't know. And then Landon's going to sing, and we're going to sing this, maybe the best song he got to pick to wrap up our first day of Passion Week. What are you going to do today? What's your action item? Who's going with you? And when are you going to do it by? When you get the answers to those things, I would invite you on your own time. I got time. I don't have another service after this, right? I can stay here till the Seder tonight. That's great. Stand up when you're ready. Come up front. Grab the elements. Go back to your seat. Have your own little worship service there, thanking Jesus, and then join the rest of us, okay? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, I come to you in the holy name of Jesus. And I confess to you that the words of man are simply inadequate to be able to touch the hearts of men and women. And so, Father, this is exactly why we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to come in and to make sense of a poor attempt to preach. And so, Father, we invited you at the beginning of this service. Move. Move in our hearts. And Father, we talked about some weighty stuff today. Because the reality is that I don't think I'm alone in moments in my life where I just have desires that are so much greater than you. And I chase after those desires more than you. And I always come up wanting more. And the ugly reality is, Father, every time that I do that, every time I don't trust the rope as I'm repelling down the mountain, I'm rejecting you because I don't think you're telling the truth that you've got this. And so, Father, I pray for everyone here this morning. I pray for those that are online. I pray, I pray these questions over them, God. I pray that you would help them process what's their action item. What are they supposed to do with this? I pray that you reveal who needs to go with them. And when does this need to be done by? Father, I pray for salvation. In a room with this many people, I can't help but believe that there are people in this room that they do not have you as king of their life. And today could be the day of salvation. Today could be the day where they ask you to forgive them, to come live and reign in their hearts, and they can enjoy freedom and the abundant life for the very first time, today can be the day of salvation. All it takes is asking. And maybe that's the action item for many in this room. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about South Lakes Church, go to slchurch.life.